And it's a pure Michigan Thursday after all these warm temperatures. We're going to get a heavy dose of winter on the west side of the state. Uh, if you're in the northern counties running about uh, Livingston East to Macomb, you're, you could get up to two inches. Uh, probably you'll be seeing the beginnings of it about an hour from now. And we're going to be watching the radar. Renee is all over it in terms of accidents. And uh, this is uh, a Thursday Eve. This is going to be one of those news weeks where I think everybody's going to be happy to get to the finish line on Friday, that scene out of Kansas City, soul crushing for those the, the highest high for a community, yeah, and then the lowest. Low. I just can't believe this happened so often. It just breaks my heart. And now we can confirm that a local DJ, a mother of two, is yeah. dead because of this. Her name was is Lisa Lopez, and uh, we're getting very little information about who the other people are, but we know 21 others had gunshot wounds, including nine children. And this hospital was treating 11 children ages 6 to 15. So a six-year-old was a part of this. And what happened is people brought guns to a celebration for the Super Bowl and started shooting. And then got into a, uh, a, a, a some kind of a dispute. And it, it was... It's it's you put this under the category of knuckleheads with guns, right? Idiots with guns, bullets flying everywhere, and they have no names and indiscriminately hit kids and and other people. But yeah. the the number of rounds fired, what was going on? Yeah, you could hear it. Well, if you see one, there's a video on social media of a woman picking up one of the guns that was just dropped, and it's huge. It's giant, sure. so it looks like something that could rattle off a lot of bullets at one time. And how do you sneak that into a right. security event where there are eight? Hundred police officers. I don't know. I, my heart hurts today. Three people have been detained. Chief Stacy Graves of the Kansas City Police said, you know, she didn't name them. She said she's angry. That's how I feel. I am angry that we can't go to a July 4th parade, a celebration for the Kansas City Chiefs, a mall, a movie theater, school without something happening. And let me just say kudos to the uh, police officers, because when you see that video and you see people running out of that building, yeah, they're, they're running, running in. in. God bless those police officers. Yes. Absolutely. And kudos to the fans that took down gunman number three. Yes. 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 You see them tackling them. Yeah. We're, um, we're done with this. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes tweeted praying for Kansas City. This is just a couple days after winning the Super Bowl. Other players guard Trey Smith thanked the emergency personnel who ran toward the sound of danger. Linebacker Drew Tranquil recognized the efforts of doctors caring for the people who had been shot. And Marquez Valdez-Scantling, a receiver who caught a touchdown in the game, he says he wants to connect with the children who are being treated at the local children's hospital to offer them support in any way he can. Good man. Um, it, it was interesting yesterday. I, I just wish, you know, the, the, there's always this cloud of, of, of possible terrorism that doesn't appear to be anywhere here. There's no nobody's clearing it, that up, though, whether it is I or wish not. they'd be more uh, straightforward yeah. with that in dismissing it. But I mean, it happened away from the cameras. It happened at the end of the event. There was a lot of markers that this wasn't the kind of big grand gesture that terrorists like do Mm -hmm. it It doesn't seem like a mass shooting where someone went there with that intent but we need to get more information from police but i think we probably will because the people that they have in custody they're gonna have to charge them uh pretty soon i mean you you have you got 72 hours usually to charge them so they'll we'll have more information and it'll be some arraignments or something and we'll know more i'm sure a lot of outrage uh, being expressed in a number of venues uh, yesterday, uh, unconnected to what was happening in Kansas City. The Michigan House yesterday, in a rare 
unified statement condemning in a resolution racist, xenophobic, and white supremacist language by members of the Michigan House. Now, it was amended before adoption to include anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Good on them. Um, but it was Matt Hall and Speaker Tate coming together, and God knows yeah. they've been bitterly divided. Right. Uh, but coming to make a, a big statement, only five Republicans voting against it, one of them being the man that it was uh, did not mention, but it was clearly aimed at. And that is Representative Josh Schreiber, Republican of Oxford, who had engaged in this great replacement theory repost on, on X. Um, he said that he was uh, voting no because he values free speech. Well, you know what? I value free speech, too. This was all about free speech. And it was the free speech of Michigan House members saying, we're not <laughs> having it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this was all about free speech, Representative Schreiber, and it was about you owning your words. So, it, yes, the First Amendment comes with responsibility, sir, and you just found that out. Uh, and and by the, at the same time, in the U.S. House, um, there was a resolution to condemn Hamas's use of rape as a weapon of war. Uh, the resolution passed 418 to zero. Oh. Okay. With Rashida Tlaib voting neither. She voted present. Wow. I would say that's a that's a contradiction, Representative. Yeah. You weren't present at all. Not for women who are victims of rape. Not for those uh, that are victimized uh, with uh, this horrible exercise of, uh, which is basically a war crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were not present when it came to denouncing a war crime. A lot of these things seem black and white. Rape is bad. I'm going to vote with my colleagues on this. You can absolutely have your stance on how you think the situation in Rafa is going. But why can't you say women shouldn't be raped in in war? No question. We've we've got uh, a United Nations investigation underway as to whether or not the Israeli army used white phosphorus, basically a chemical Mm -hmm. weapon, Mm -hmm. uh, against uh, targets in, uh, in Lebanon and perhaps elsewhere. By the way, they... Uh, This morning, the breaking news was a group of Israelis has gone into the Nasser Hospital, uh, which has been a stronghold for Gaza refugees, uh, where they've been sheltering. Uh, But they believe that they have a a Hamas uh, target there. Uh, Meantime, I I would like to say that it's clarified the leadership of the Michigan Republican Party, but it's certainly (laughs) a step in that direction. Yeah. Former uh, Congressman uh, Pete Hoekstra, he's been formally appointed as uh, the Michigan GOP chairman by the National Republican Party. The decision reached yesterday follows a unanimous vote by the executive committee of the Republican National Committee to recognize Hoekstra's leadership and uphold the removal of Christina Caramo from the position earlier this year. The contentious vote to oust Karamo, a staunch supporter of former President Donald Trump, led to a divide within the Michigan GOP. Trump endorsed Hoekstra for the position, emphasizing the need for party unity ahead of the upcoming presidential election. Hoekstra, a former U.S. representative and ambassador under Trump, expressed his commitment to leading the party to victory in November. While the RNC's decision provides some validation for Hoekstra, the legal battle over the chair position is far from over. Karamo, who contests the RNC's authority in this matter, awaits a court filing. And the Karamo wing of the state GOP released a statement saying the RNC's discriminatory actions against chairwoman Karamo as a a voting member only prompt us to take the necessary steps to protect the rights and the will of the Michigan Republican Party, precinct delegates, state committee members and voters. And Pete Hoekstra will join us later on this morning at 849. She's not going 
quietly. How many times um, in the parking lot, wherever it may be, have you been backing up and you're trying to be careful? You're checking your blind spots, your rear view, mm-hmm. backup cameras, all of that. And your your car will warn you that a pedestrian is walking from the side. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. So those systems are helpful. Yeah. But a, the, the, how many times do you say to yourself, why is that person not seeing my backup lights? Why are they still walking behind me? <laughs> why are they putting so much faith in me and those emergency systems? Yeah. AAA out with a, a, a test this morning of those emergency backup and cross-traffic mitigation systems saying that in the multiple tests that they did, they only prevented an accident uh, 65% of the time. They only applied the brakes 65% of the time and prevented a collision in 2.5% of the test runs in the context of a backing-up scenario in, involving a vehicle crossing. When you add in a, a child target, for instance, okay. they, were only, they only were, applied the brakes in 75% of the cases and prevented accidents and perhaps loss of life in only 50%. So for, for pedestrians out there, if you see someone's backup lights, don't put your faith in technology or the driver. Yeah. Um, just stop. I mean, cars, I've backed out and cars have flown past me. They, they speed up. Yeah. They see me coming out zoom, right behind me. Yeah. <laughs> These are issues in different parts. Costco, it's yep. super busy. Oh, oh yeah. You yeah. just got to have your head on a swivel there. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. You got to be yeah. an owl. But, I mean, <laughs> just a nice warning today as you go about your business that we we all know we have to be careful we can't rely on that technology, and if you're a pedestrian, neither should you. With the recent news of the Hunter Square Shopping Center at 14 Mile in Orchard Lake potentially facing demolition, the owner of Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum has a reassuring message for all the supporters and patrons who have cherished this museum over the years. And joining us on the JR Morning Live line is Jeremy Ugoda who's here to share his optimism and determination to keep that magic of Marvin's alive. Jeremy, good morning. Good morning. You know, you've received a lot of love and support from the community, and we were just talking about community uh, just uh, a moment ago. Your dad opened this iconic establishment over 43 years ago, and you kept his memory alive. You want to continue to do that? Absolutely. It's just a fun thing to do every day. I get to deal with great people in a marvelous mood and a marvelous environment and create memories for families. Um, Jeremy, I didn't have kids until just recently, and I live on the other side of town. So if people like me didn't know about your museum, what is it? We are a sensory overload, one man's passion gone wild. <laughs> I have- it's heaven. I have it is. games from the 1890s to the most modern video games out there and a little bit of everything in between. Well, that sounds fun. So, and you host birthday parties and things like that is what I heard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we're going to be able to move and find a better location. So I'll be able to actually have some private party rooms to give people a little bit even better birthday than we can do right now. Well, and let's talk about that. How receptive, I, I'm a big fan of the Meyer organization and the Meyer family. How receptive have they been to your entries or proposals to, to have a role in what they're going to be doing in their redevelopment of that space? You know, we're actually not being replaced by Meyer. Meyer is going to be, it's a small footprint, grocery store only, 
and we're being torn down for another phase of the development. But the Meyer family has posted on Facebook that they support us and hope that the new landlord will be able to include us in the future plans. The city of Farmington Hills, the mayor has spoken at the meetings and, you know, really expressed her interest with the landlord keeping us around there as well. So I, I really don't have any definitive answers from the landlord yet. They have said they would like us to stay around, but not they have not offered us any plans or options yet. I just really hope we can stay, work something out to stay in that general location. I want to stay in the community if we can't stay in that same mall. Did they give you a, a basically a deadline on when you would have to move? Well, our lease is through the beginning of January, so we have about 10 more months. Um, they have not given us any specific date or told us if it's going to be any longer than that yet, so just kind of sitting here waiting and curious and confused. Um, when it comes to the support and the people that just came out and said, oh, we love this museum, it can't move, it can't go anywhere else, what do you think your dad would say about all this support? You know, I mean, it's funny. A lot of people have been saying my dad would be rolling over in his grave during all of this. And, you know, I think he would be upset like I am, but at the same time, I, I think that he would be excited about the opportunities and possibilities to go to the next level and do more and different things. My dad was always a very positive person, and he would say, when life gives you lemons, make, the, make lemonade. we got to make the best out of what's in front of us. I have no desire to close or go away, so something will work out. I have faith and confidence. I believe in the free market, and where there's demand... There's usually right. a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got to ask you, Jeremy, I mean, I'm a guy that if I look at the devices that I have just in my house, from the DVR to the remotes that control those things, you know, I, I can't ever get keep this stuff working full time. <laughs> How do you keep all of those machines going? You know, I am so fortunate. My brother-in-law works with me as my general manager, and he loves that stuff. He loves to tinker. He's very intelligent with electronics and figuring those things out. So I'm fortunate my brother-in-law really fixes about 90% of the problems we have. Wow, because, I mean, you've got both circuit board issues with your electronic stuff, but then you've got the old-school mechanical thing that yes. requires a totally different skill set. You know, but the fortunate thing is everybody thinks that it's gotten harder to deal with the old mechanical stuff. But with scanners and 3D printers, it's actually a lot easier to make parts in these days. Mm -hmm. Because you used to have to try to find somebody with a machine shop who could fit you into their busy schedule for a one-of piece. So it's actually gotten a little bit better, surprisingly. I would think, too. I mean, I know technology is, is always evolving. Does AI play a part in this down the line somewhere? It definitely could, you know, but we're not there yet, fortunately. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the Well, ask thing. that fortune teller machine you've that got. Was yes. yeah. Do you have that yeah. one from the movie Big? <laughs> you know, that's one of the most famous questions we get, and unfortunately, the one from Big is a totally fake machine that was just made for that oh, okay. movie. They could never actually do that because of the different coins and weights of rolling into the mouth and everything. But we have some great vintage fortune tellers, and we have some modern ones that have been built just for us as well. Well, I do have a, a kid now. I have a little girl. So maybe I'll head over the other side of town and check you out. 
We're not just for little kids. We're for kids from one to a hundred. Well, then I'll bring my husband too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Several years ago, we actually had a hundred year one year old woman who wanted to have her birthday party there and did because there were things she remembered from when she was a kid, and it was just amazing to see how excited her and her friends were. Well, Jeremy, you go to thank you so much for being here. We wish you all the luck in keeping uh, Marvin uh, Marvin's marvelous mechanical museum. Uh, on tap. Thank you so much. Thank you, and you guys all have a marvelous day. And he's just a marvelous guy and spreading good cheer, and I hope he can pull that off. Did you, I mean, I know guys in college that got addicted to pinball. Um, That spent hours. I don't know anyone addicted to pinball. Was that like the original video game addiction? No, it's not a video game. I mean, pinball is pinball, right? I know, but like the pre-video game. Yeah, I mean, I, I played pinball. I didn't play it a lot. I play more of the videos and got the Pac-Man thumb. Oh, yeah. oh, no question. Or Game Boy thumb. Oh, Game Boy thumb. You know, I, when I got addicted to my kids' Game Boy. When they, I was like, isn't it time to go to sleep now, Graham? Daddy wants to play Kid Icarus. I had um, that original Game Boy. You know, the one where that went on, you put them down. The, yeah, yeah, and then you have to just blow the dust out. And that's how you fix, fix them. Yeah. Um, Kind of related, but New York City today is suing all the social media companies, accusing them of contributing to a youth mental health crisis. Do you get the feeling that these social media companies are the new big tobacco? Mm -hmm. That they've got all these studies internally Mm -hmm. showing just how damaging their products are, but they sit on them and then lie to us? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's... And so now there's going to be some warning that comes up. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So when you right. go to Facebook or Instagram, it'll be a warning. Which no one's going to acknowledge. No. Or, but no. it, it's, it seems like we're heading for a wreck. It's like here. the parental guidance on those old CDs or the record. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. cares. Uh, when we come back at 635, uh, space-based weapons have been banned since 1967. But yesterday, a warning coming from a House intelligence official saying that there is a very real Russian threat that they could be deploying them. Mike Rogers next on JR Morning. And checking our winter weather advisory, we've got a line of snow showers moving into Livingston County, just the western edge right now, and heading our way. So it's it's all over the mitten, except southeast Michigan, but it's uh, the arrival. It's uh, ETA is going to be in the next half hour or so if you're on the western side of our listening area and we've even got some uh, snow showers uh, out ann arbor way is the nuclear race about to enter outer space that's something that's been banned since 1967 but a warning coming from a high-ranking house intelligence official yesterday uh warns without being specific that we could be facing a significant national security threat from Russia. And with a little bit more digging, we found out it's about space-based nuclear weapons. Let's talk to the man that once occupied that seat as the House Intelligence Chair, Mike Rogers, joining us live this morning as he also campaigns for a seat in the U.S. Senate. Good morning, Mike. Guy, it is, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Does this surprise you that, that apparently Russia is getting closer to perhaps deploying something like this that could blind our satellites? No. Uh, unfortunately, they've been talking about this for years. Um, you know, so China got into the anti-satellite business probably about 2007 when they fired off uh, an anti-satellite missile. Uh, and then they have developed other capabilities since that time. So, 
you know, they, they call them satellite killers. So these countries will launch satellites whose sole purpose it is, is to disrupt or, or eliminate our ability uh, to conduct uh, uh, collection platforms in space. So this has been ongoing for a very long time. What surprises me is that that sense of urgency that that uh, the chairman, when he released that statement, now that that was a, a bit of a surprise. He's normally a pretty somber guy, so I yeah. would. I'm very curious to see what new information is, and if they're getting ready to operationalize nukes in space. That's boy, that would that's a game changer. Well, and sure. he was getting out ahead of the White House, which had already planned a a briefing for anybody that wanted one today. Y- yes, my understanding. Well, that's interesting. My understanding was it was uh, just a gang of four. So how that works is not every member of Congress gets all of the information that happens in the intelligence committees. It's a it's that smaller group. Okay. Yeah, uh, it might have been. I, but you, you, I think you got correction. I think it was the gang of eight that they were going to rule yes, it out. There you to. go. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. Because these are things. And listen, there are things that you see that are going on around the world every day. If you if you you know ran around with your hair on fire on all of it, no one would ever sleep ever. Uh, there's, there's a lot of bad <laughs> intentions out there toward the United States. And so, you know, I always argue you got to be careful about what you talk about because you try to manage these national security problems in a way that protects the American public. Uh, but if there is a if he was not getting the the attention and traction and, uh, you know, progress that the White House would have to do to either eliminate a threat or deter a threat or discourage a threat. Uh, then you might do something like this. So I'm going to be very curious to see. You know, unfortunately, when you brief that many members of Congress, it you guarantee it'll be out in the public here pretty soon. Uh, well, Mike, you know, House Intelligence Committee Chair uh, Mike Turner, uh, he issued a, a statement, and he's urging the administration to declassify the information so the U.S. and the and its allies can openly discuss how to respond. Yeah, I mean, I, transparency is always important. I do believe that. Uh, but you have to weigh the consequences of disclosure with our ability to make sure we keep Americans safe. And so uh, if there's something that they can do, I mean, one thing it sure has done, I'll give you this. It certainly brought attention to what this, to what the Russians have been doing, mm-hmm. uh, trying to, A, nuclearize space, which is huge. And what it would be, by the way, think of this, it's a giant explosion in space that would function like a, uh, an EMP, which would t- fry all the electronics on all the satellites. Uh, so you think, uh, you know, you get up in the morning and you, you can't remember how to get to work because you're so focused on your GPS. Guess what? Your GPS is gone. It's not working. So we do a lot from space, a lot of financial transactions. I mean, you think of how much happens in space. Right. That's why this becomes so important, and that's why people would be concerned. And if they're getting ready to operate, operationalize, sorry, big word for me this morning, uh, the fact that you're going to explode a nuclear device in space or at least place a device in space, that that's something that we, you know, awareness is good so that you can take steps to correct it and make sure that they aren't able to operationalize that kind of a thing. So there's that fine line, Lloyd, I think, where you say, okay, what do we need to know and what do we need to keep classified? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can you can find a good balance in there most times. Uh, Mike, all these lawmakers came out and said, don't panic, public. Mike Johnson said, steady hands are at the wheel. We're working on it. Uh, How does Russia take all this, that now this is a discussion over here in our country? Well, so I have to tell you, a few years ago, 
uh, the Russians came out and said that they had a nuclear uh, torpedo uh, that would go into ports. They would detonate this nuclear torpedo, and it would take that ability to use that port, uh, you know, off the table in any conflict. So they could either do it to impact economics of a country. Uh, and so every time the Russians feel pressure, it seems to me that they they step up this notion that they have this weapon system that they just might use. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I do think that, you know, be, because, you know, again, I, I was uh, knew about this, these kinds of activities back in the early 2000s. So you can tell that they've been thinking about it a long time. Are they going to operationalize it to different things? So I, I think the Russians are probably saying, you know, I love it. I love the fact that people right. are running around terrified of the Russians. And so that's why you have to be careful. You don't play in their hands while still having a good discussion here at home. You know, before the, the Russian invasion into, into Ukraine, there was a lot of uh, talk about containment. Uh, there was concern about appeasement. What should be the appropriate response to this news that they may be thinking about deploying this? Well, there's there's lots of options that uh, that uh, in a classified session uh, or a classified way that that could uh, lead to disrupting something like this. And then there's the diplomatic front, and you have to engage very aggressively on the diplomatic front. This would change the face of of national security, not just for us, but our European allies, right. the Chinese, the Iranians. I mean, this is a that's why this is such a big deal. If, in fact, this is the information, remember, there are also cyber capabilities that uh, would keep you up all night long, you know, turning off your water and your electric. And by the way, it's not coming on to tomorrow or next week or or maybe, you know, next year. So there's lots of weapon systems and weapon platforms out there that countries are developing. The Russians started all of that in the cyberspace, by the way, but the Chinese are catching up. Uh, and so that you have to worry about all of that. And so what you would want is a very unified approach to this, because, again, you do not want a nuclear arms race in space. Really, really bad for the for the planet uh, and certainly our right. own national security, right. for sure. Well, we will hope that uh, calm heads prevail here and that we can find an appropriate response. In the meantime, Mike, can I call you when I'm lying awake tonight? <laughs> yeah, I'm a regular old well, citizen. I scared you, you now. Can call me because you can call me because I'll be awake. Well, I'm just worried about all of this. No, this is uh, yeah, this is real stuff. But yeah, here's the good. I just want to leave on a good note. There are really good. Uh, uh, you know, the intelligence agencies do some really good work. They've done some dumb things of late, but they do some really good things about trying to get ahead of these problems. And so. You know, that's why you have them and that's why you want them to do this work. And that's why you want them to find out the kinds of things they're doing so that we can prevent it. All right. Uh, by the way, one final question, I, because I want to let you go. But uh, James Craig withdrawing from the race for the U.S. Senate. He had pretty high name recognition. He was doing OK in the polls, but apparently couldn't get the fundraising together. Your thoughts on that and how that uh, affects your run? Yeah, I mean. Chief Craig was, was uh, you know, certainly a worthy opponent, a great guy. He was doing some very, very good things. He's a distinguished public servant. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I hope he does stays engaged. I know that we're going to seek out his counsel on some law enforcement things. Um, and, but it certainly helps us tremendously. We feel pretty good about where we're at right now. Um, and, uh, you know, our numbers are up. Uh, 
you know, people are, are signing up. We're, we're getting great endorsements around the state. So we're starting to coalesce. And the earlier we do this as, a, as the Republicans, uh, the better chances we have in November. And remember, the primary is not the prize here. The, the winning right. uh, that November election is how you change things in Washington, D.C., and that's what our targeting goals are going to be. Well, and having your uh, intelligence experience in Washington would be, uh, I think, a good thing for all of us. Uh, Mike Rogers, thanks so much. Thank you all. Have a great morning. All right. Well, sleep a little better or try (laughs) to. When we come back, small business always looking for opportunities. We've got one that you should be interested in. It involves the federal government. Uh, and, and we'll tell you about how you can make the road to getting government contracts a little bit easier. I am thrilled to extend a special invitation for you to join Gail and me on a once-in-a-lifetime experience in Southeast Asia. We are going to Cambodia and Vietnam with the WJR Travel Club, uh, in, visiting the largest religious complex in the world, the Angkor Wat uh, Temple, dating back to the 1100s, which is steeped in mystery but also sacred uh, meaning uh there's just so many too many things to really list here but i'll I'll tell you this the best thing about going with with cruise and tour and the wjr travel club is it's a great value i think when you check it out at wjr travel club.com or contact them at 1-800-383-3131 you're going to find out just how much value added is here in terms of connecting with people who will make this experience and the culture of Southeast Asia come alive. I'm so excited about this, and I hope you will join Gail and I as we get ready to head in September to Southeast Asia. Do visit WJRTravelClub.com and learn more about this great value and epic journey. Our snow showers are all over Livingston County right now, so if you're heading out for your commute there... You might find some slippery conditions so far uh, just to the northwestern corner of Oakland County is affected. But we're going to be on top of it, uh, all over it for you this morning. We know that Detroit uh, is the arsenal of democracy. And certainly in sectors of our economy, we have TACOM, we have General Dynamics. We still play a big role in keeping this country safe. Uh, Small business, there's a lot of opportunity in the defense sector that you may not know about, but it also may seem daunting competing for those contracts. There is an opportunity to help you navigate that. We welcome in Farouk Mita. He's director of the Office of Small Business Programs for the U.S. Department of Defense. Mr. Mita, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. Just talk to us about what kind of opportunities are out there in terms of uh, services or products that the, the, the DOD is looking for. Yeah, no, uh, you know, the, just writ large, the federal government in the U.S. is the largest purchaser of goods and services in the world. And within the U.S. government, DOD has the biggest spend. And we spend just on prime contracts alone to small businesses, depending on the budget, about $90 billion per year. And in that spend, we're buying all kinds of products and services, professional services. We spend a lot of money on manufacturers. We're producing component parts for our systems. We have a huge R&D portfolio where small businesses participate in developing technologies that we need both today and in the future. DOD has over 25 components, not just the Army, Navy, Air Force, but other components that buy food, that buy clothes for our military service members, you name it, we buy a lot of it. So within that spectrum, there's a lot of opportunities for small businesses to do business with us. 
And, you know, uh, there are a lot of small businesses, especially here in Detroit, sometimes uh, when, when when they think about trying to get in with the federal government, it just seems overwhelming to a lot of them, especially um, um, minority business and women-owned businesses as well. And how do you kind of make sure that they understand that there is a space for them and their place for them to do business with the uh, federal government? Yeah, so... That's a great question. We do a lot of engagement with industry all across the country. We have industry days. We have uh, market research that our workforce does to look for small businesses that could perform work uh, in the areas where we have requirements. My office also has 97 locations called Apex Accelerators all across the country. And we have several of them all across Michigan. And we've really leveraged these 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 uh, centers to be our front door to industry, where companies can go, they can get one-on-one counseling, they can really understand what the DoD needs are, and they can get real help on how to compete for these opportunities. Also, the Small Business Business Administration has locations called Small Business Development Centers that help companies that are more in the startup phase, where they're trying to form a company, develop a business plan. There's a lot of resources, especially in Michigan, that are helping companies do this. We actually launched a new location for our Apex Accelerator program in Dearborn, Michigan, last year to grow our footprint in the area. And we're really looking forward to continuing to work with industry here on helping them learn about opportunities and how they can participate. Uh, Sir, is there a type of small business? Is there a need within the Department of Defense that you need small businesses to step up? Yeah, I think right now there's a really big emphasis on how we can bring in innovative technologies, commercial companies, and do business with them faster. There's parts of the Department of Defense. One is called the Defense Innovation Unit, but there's others that really work with startups, with technology innovation-related companies, and put requirements out there in areas like autonomy and cybersecurity in robotics, in clean energy, and bring them in to bring their capabilities to support our mission, but do it in a way where we can actually contract with them faster to prototype technologies so we can bring in companies that are not normally doing business with the department. You know, to a lot of small businesses, um, you look at the federal government, you think, my, this is just going to be a labyrinth of paperwork that I'm not going to be able to navigate. I know you've got an event coming up. Uh, at Schoolcraft College. Is that going to be one of the things that you help small business owners tackle? Yeah, it definitely is. One of the main focuses that I've had uh, in in the the Biden administration has had has been how do we reduce barriers to entry for these companies? How do we make it easier for them to communicate with us? And that's why that Apex Accelerator program is so important. That's a term that that's the kind of term that I think scares people off. What is an Apex Accelerator? It sounds very technical. Yeah, so it's funny you asked that. Actually, this program used to be called the Procurement Technical Assistance Center, and it moved over to my Apex office about better. a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Apex is well, you know, I, I changed the name of the program when it moved to my office a year ago because I thought if I was, I was a small business owner before I took this job, and if somebody said to me, go to a PTAC, I probably wouldn't know what they were talking about. We changed the name to have a more commercially resonating name in Apex because we really want to take American businesses and accelerate them into the federal government marketplace. And these accelerators are there all across the country to help companies break down the barriers, understand the opportunities, 
and compete for contracts. And by my count on your map here, there's 11 different accelerators in our state you could go to. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, you've got this event at Schoolcraft College. Give us the what, where, and uh, what folks need to bring. Yeah, so we're doing this at Schoolcraft College in Livonia, and we're going to have myself and the, and the deputy administrator of the Small Business Administration, and we're really going to be talking about work that we're doing together because SBA, as you know, they are the drivers of small business, and we have a big small business need for our requirements at DOD. So we're going to be meeting with companies with industry and talking to them about some of the work we're doing, about our relationship between their centers, which I mentioned, the SBDCs, in my centers, which are the Apex Accelerators, so companies can understand who does what, where can they go to for what, and also to hear from them. We want to hear from companies and see what more we can do to help ease the complexity of doing business with the government. All right, it's 10 to noon on uh, February 16th, this Friday, Schoolcraft College Vista Tech Center. That's on uh, Haggerty Road in Livonia. Is, do we have to register for this, or is it come as you are? Uh, either one. There is a registration website, but people can come as they are, and we'd love to meet as many companies as we can and, and right. really promote all the great work happening in the state. Baruch Mita, thanks for the opportunity. I'm sure there's a, this will be very helpful to a lot of small business leaders. Yes, it's always great to be in Michigan, despite the cold. Uh, looking forward <laughs> to a great event uh, uh, tomorrow. Checking the weather on Wall Street, everything pointed green that we could reclaim some of the earnings that we had lost or the gains that we had lost in that meltdown on Tuesday. So things on the futures market pointing in the right direction to open your Thursday. And happy Thursday to you. Um, We uh, are all still shocked and saddened for the community of Kansas City when the highest of highs becomes the most gut-wrenching and heartbreaking story of, of the week. Yeah, this is life in America. Another shooting, this time near Union Station in Kansas City. Uh, One person is dead. At least 21 others uh, had gunshot wounds, including nine children. And Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City said it was treating 11 children ages 6 to 15. So they went to a parade with their parents, and now they're in the hospital. Three people have been detained, Chief Stacy Graves of the Kansas City Police said, but she did not name them. Investigators had not identified a motive. She added they're working to tally the number of rounds that had been fired, mm-hmm. and they're asking for public, you know, if you have video on your phone, you know, if you've checked social media, you see some just people at the parade just took one of them down and waited until police could get there. Um, I'm kind of surprised he survived because I've got to imagine there was a lot of pent up anger after all of yeah, this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good for those good Samaritans who did that and to the police restraint. who ran who in the ran direction towards the problem of the mm-hmm. shooting. Yeah. Unfortunately, a mom of two and a radio station DJ, her name is Lisa Lopez, is someone who died in this senseless act. Um, the players who were again highest of highs just a couple of days ago. Patrick Mahomes tweeted he's praying for Kansas City. Uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling, he caught a touchdown in the game, and now he's worried about the children in that hospital. He said he's going to try and support them in any way he can. Travis Kelsey said, I'm heartbroken over the tragedy that took place. My heart is with all who came out to celebrate with us. Casey, you mean the world to me. So, again, we're back in this place where it I mean, just as, is so senseless. Yeah. As an adult, and you go to a uh, a parade like that and this breaks out, how that affects you mentally as an adult. Just imagine for the children, the kids, these poor kids. Well, and, and, you know, it's an adult going to those places and saying, OK, where's my exit? 
what am I going to do? You know, you can't go anywhere now without thinking about those things. There was a terrorism expert on yesterday that said, look, this looks like one of those things where you got a couple gangbangers, they had a beef, and they opened fire on each other. And so he said this really doesn't lend itself to a lot of talk about gun laws because criminals will always get around that. True enough. But there was a capacity to destroy life here that when, you know, you it is a conversation about sizes of magazines, mm-hmm. the kinds of weapons that are out there for these knuckleheads. Um, so, I don't believe there's nothing we can do. There's no, got to be I, something. Other countries have figured this out, and we don't have to be that restrictive as other countries are, but something. And I know we shouldn't have to do it, but is it time to, I mean, we're already talking about this in Greek town, about yes. having uh, magnetometers in a, in a very easily controlled perimeter. Right. So that you can make us all safer and feel better about going to that these can events. Check big crowds of people. If they can secure Times Square on New Year's Eve, by God, can't they secure these kinds of events better? And yeah. I know we shouldn't have to think that but that's way. That's life. We have you to walk protect metal yourself. detectors everywhere. Yeah. Well, but not necessarily. They've got these passive detectors now where you don't even know you're being screened. Right. So it's it's possible. Um, speaking of, of young people and violence, um, James Crumbly, evidentiary hearing yesterday. Uh, apparently, the two school officials that testified in Jennifer Crumbly's trial were so traumatized by that experience that they may not be able to testify in James Crumbly's case. And so uh, prosecutors are asking uh, for an expanded list of witnesses that will include some of the wounded students uh, who were whose lives were irrevocably changed on November 30th, 21. Uh, it, okay. I don't want to <laughs> <You>, say anything. <laughs> I mean, but so... This is a safe space. <laughs> okay, you're the, you were the adults in the room, and you can't testify in this? You're going to make the children come up? Well, and you know what? I No, I think that's... Yeah. But it shows you that the, the level of trauma out there after an event like this. But That's you're right. Why are you going? Your your uh, reluctance is going to mean that you, yeah. other young people are going to be subjected to any this. story that comes up. I'm this mom thinking about yeah. the kid. No, no. That's just I, my I, prison. I all, yeah, I, I think we all you give internalize that. that. I just feel horrible for the kids that yeah. are going to be called into this. And maybe they are willing to testify because they're good and amped up about what happened to them mm-hmm. two years ago. Well, maybe So maybe James, it will be a clarifying or, you know. And maybe James Crumbly will take a plea and, and spare everybody all that. Yeah, but I, I got a feeling after the way Jennifer Crumbly went down that the prosecutors aren't so inclined. But you're right. That would make you know. everything a lot mm-hmm. easier. Um, we are following a number of stories, but the one that I think everybody is going to be talking about, hold on, dear is the story of this airborne tale a nightmare. Oh, my goodness. A flight from Amsterdam to Detroit took an unexpected turn when maggots rained down on a person from an overhead bin, prompting the plane to turn back just an hour into the journey. Now, Philip Schott, he was a witness. He described the shocking scene as the woman next to him battling these intruders uh, of maggots. The uh, passenger's bag containing a rotten fish. Discovered by flight attendants, the passenger admitted to the smelly mishap. He said, yep, that's my bag. It's my fish. And the fishy cargo was uh, swiftly removed. Despite the surreal situation, Delta Airlines issued an apology to passengers, attributing the incident to an improperly packed carry-on. I think it was a little more than that. The aircraft was grounded for cleaning while passengers were rerouted to their destination and shot understandably relieved to be on a different flight. But just wondering... 
how did the this get through the So in scanner? Amsterdam, I just came back from Amsterdam when we were in Africa a year ago. Yeah. I mean, they have intense security, even more stringent than what we have here. And the funny thing is, is I mean, they'll even interview you as a passenger before you get on the plane. They want to screen you for telltale signs yeah. of anxiety or whatever. So you're telling me they couldn't catch a stinky fish that probably... I mean, but is that stinky. against the rules? I, I don't need high tech. I got this big protuberance <laughs> from my face that could have detected that fish. I mean, if it has maggots, it's been it's right. rotten for a long time. And how did it fall on the lady? It was, I guess the bag was partially open. It was put in the overhead and, you know, how things shift or people put... And it just fell over. Trust me, Samuel L. Jackson is working on a sequel right now to Snakes oh, on a Plane. Snakes on a Plane? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maggots on a Plane. Uh, in fact, forgive us. Forgive us for that, but I it know. is the talk about it. The it day. is. Everybody's it, talking about it, that. It really is. Time for WJR's Business Beat, uh, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Let's check in with Jeff Sloan, CEO and founder of Startup Nation, to tell us about the tech and startup sector here on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. We are all well aware of how the pandemic hit the restaurant industry hard. And, of course, its impact continues to linger today. However, things are looking up, and 2024 is expected to be a much better year for this industry sector. That from the National Restaurant Association State of the Restaurant Industry Report. Of course, the restaurant sector is an important one to all of us in that it provides unique lifestyle experiences. Vitally important to local community economies and as a whole is an important source of employment with a projection of over 15.7 million people projected to be employed by this industry sector in 2024. Now, the recently published report forecasts restaurant sales to exceed 1.1 trillion for 2024. And if that target's hit, this would be a new record. Restaurant operators are feeling optimistic with roughly 80% of restaurant tours predicting that their sales will increase by as much as 33% this year when compared to sales in 2023. One key change to the restaurant business model is that delivery, carryout, and drive-through, as opposed to in-restaurant dining, continues to be a core part of sales projections for 2024. 52% of consumers, which includes 67% of millennials, and 63% of Gen Zers say ordering takeout is not only desired, it's an essential part of their lifestyle. Now, to be clear, all is not rosy. The report makes the point that employment issues, supply chain issues, and the pressures on profitability due to continued inflation remain real and challenging. 45% of restaurant operators still need more employees. 70% have job openings that they haven't been able to fill. So overall, things looking up for the restaurant industry, no doubt, though, still challenging times ahead. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Most of Livingston County under uh, some snow showers right now and the northern two-thirds of Oakland County involved moving into Farmington Hills, West Bloomfield, Rochester. Uh, it's here the heavy stuff is to the west still, but it's going to be a, a challenging morning maybe for some folks. For many people, it is Thursday Eve or Friday Eve. But for us, it's Therapy Thursday, where we spend a little time on the couch with Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Doc, good morning. Yeah, the, the hardest time of my week down here with you guys. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no right. It's the best time of the week for us. <laughs> did, did Valentine's Day go well at the Craig house? Uh, All yeah, those relationships but, enhanced and oh, it's perfect. Two psychologists living together, no, no problems at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you gave at least you get you get free analysis uh, for, for Valentine's Day. Oh, two marriage therapists living together is a trip. Oh. <laughs> well, here, let me give you some advice. Work on your own relationship, not just others' relationships. That's important too. Oh, wow, have you? You're welcome. Jeez. Boy, All she's right, we're done with therapy. <laughs> <laughs> she's got us. She All right, well, there's a good segue, maybe. All right. This week, Dr. Steve, my wife and I are having marital problems that are admittedly my fault. This is not from me. For most of my adult life, I have had a drinking problem, a gambling problem, and also some anger issues. But other than that. But other than that. <laughs> things are great. Three months ago, my wife threatened to leave me if I didn't shape, and I finally got the message, and I've stopped all that. But now that I'm around the house on nights and weekends, instead of out doing all that other stuff, my wife is rarely around. She's out with her friends playing cards or out playing pickleball and doing all kinds of other things. How are we supposed to work on our marriage if I only see her a few nights a week? Hmm. Making these changes is really hard, and I need her more than ever right now, and she's basically not there for me. Now that I've finally changed, I fear it's too late. Makes me think I... Uh, makes me think I've already lost her, but people tell me to just give it time. But now is when we need to be working on it, not sometime in the future that may never come. I need some advice as how do I get her to see that I've really changed and she has to participate in fixing things before it's too late. Mm. I think they need to have uh, some type of therapy together, number one, but understanding, she has to understand that he's been doing all of these things and it is a change. It's different now and, and, it, he he needs to find something, you know, else to do. He needs to be out maybe with some of his friends, but maybe his all his friends were doing the gambling and the drinking and, and all of that. So I, I just think they need to come together and maybe have some therapy together to uh, figure this out. Because it seems like to me, it's like, okay, he's home now and he's not doing that, so I'm going to hang out with my friends and, you know, before you know it, that marriage won't be won't be there anymore i feel like if he's been doing this a long time she's just not you know she's just not gonna believe him right off the jump he has to make some moves to show her that it's really real but if he's been home all the time he's not going out well this kind of falls under the heading you reap what you sow right (laughs) um why not i mean what's kind of missing from here is has he shared this with his wife is you know you asked me to modify my behavior i have and i miss you and I, you know, or why not just say, hey, honey, Friday's date night and I want to take you somewhere. Where would you like to go? Let's have a let, let, start courting her again because mm-hmm. you checked out. Ah, All right. You're going to win this week, Jamie. I don't know. <laughs> Taking a lot of L's. <laughs> but you're still better than the Pistons. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I think all of that is true in there, but there's an important part that's missing that's going to get in the way of this guy, and he needs to hear it. So if he was in my office, we wouldn't talk about other stuff that you're talking about there. I would hit him with the fact that I'm going to throw some psych terms at you here. We either have – there's two things. We have an internal locus of control or external. Internal is I handle my own problems. I solve things. When I'm angry, I figure out how to self-soothe. External is I need something, someone else or something else to take care of me all the time. Mm-hmm. Codependency is a relationship is when I need you to take care of all my emotional needs, all of my needs, and you need me. And we're just feeding each other. Instead of us handling it ourselves, the other person is doing that for us. Okay. And that becomes unhealthy. The problem with this guy has throughout this email to me is he's not really changed. He says he's changed. He thinks he's changed. 
but he used all those substances. When he would be in a bad spot, he's uncomfortable, he's insecure, he's something, he turns to drinking or whatever his vice is. Mm -hmm. That was his coping, was an external thing would make him feel better. Now that he's not doing that, he wants her to be there to make him feel better. So he's not really fixing himself. He needs to fix himself. So when you feel upset, you don't need to have her. Her job is not to make all of your problems and all your insecurities and everything go away. It's your job to figure out how to work on those things. And I think he needs to go to therapy. He, he would sit in my office and we'd say, yes, now that you're here and you're not hiding in that other stuff, how are you dealing with your own problems? Because your wife can't solve them for you. Well, true, but if she's but not, her, I mean, she, he's still missing her. Right, and right. He still to wants to help. He, right. he, he wants the relationship to work. It sounds like she's already checked out. So she might be checked out. So what we would talk about is you need to focus on taking care of you so that then when you say to her, let's have Friday night dinner, you make sure that Friday night dinner isn't her taking care of you again. You don't go there and redo your same thing. Mm -hmm. Now at Friday night dinner, you're saying, here's how I'm handling this, this, this. I'm taking care of all stuff. How are you doing? And now she doesn't, she's not suddenly become his, you know, his crutch for him to solve everything. So the problem is those things that you said are correct, but he will just keep repeating the same behavior during those times together. He has to fix that first. So what's the line between wanting to spend some time with your significant other and needing it? Where where does codependency begin? Um, That's a great question because we all need our spouse to be there for many things. So there's some degree of dependency or your relationship isn't really healthy. Like, if I don't care what she thinks, you know. Right. Right. But it depends how much you're relying on that person to actually save you from all your stuff. Like, like my wife, I have my own collection. I mean, spend some time with me. You'd think, oh, my God, you know, I have all my collection, my own insecurities and whatever. But my job is to take care of them. And she goes along with me and supports me and makes sure, what do you need to do with me? What do you need me to do, Steve, to help you solve them yourself? Be your support system, not solve it for you. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, our, our spouse has to be there as our cheerleader, not as our solver. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think also in this email, she doesn't quite believe him that the change has occurred. I, and that's part of the point there, too, is that she doesn't believe him. A, she's been burned. But B, whether she realizes it or not. Somewhere in her, I've done this enough that I realize they don't think he's changed because she senses that he really hasn't. Because he's, whatever in her realizes that he's still looking for it externally. So how does he restore that credibility? By actually starting to fix it himself and having conversations with her about the fact that I'm dealing with my problems. I'm I'm not relying on you to save them. So he's talking to her while he's dealing with it. While he has to change his mind and say, it's my job to solve my problems. I wish you would be here. Right. To be, go along with me so you could see it, but it's my job to, to save them. It's not your job to be here if I feel bad. And they always say people don't stop whatever they're doing, their vices, drinking, whatever, for other people. They do it for themselves. They do it for themselves. And we cannot expect someone else to save us from our problems or it, the other person eventually just can't take the burden. Yeah, because if you don't do it for yourself, you'll end up repeating it, right? You just mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Because they just keep switching, like I'm saying. It moves from alcohol, it moves to dependency on that. And then if that doesn't work, then I'll become a workaholic. I don't know, something else. Solve it yourself. Dr. Steve, always great to have you here. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.
Inadequate staffing, physical abuse in the workplace, just a couple things Michigan nurses are citing when it comes to their workplaces and contributing to a burnt out rate. 94% of Michigan nurses reporting emotional exhaustion, according to a new study. Let's bring in Christopher Fries, professor of nursing and health management and policy at the University of Michigan. Good morning, Christopher. Good morning. Great to be with you. So this is a that's that's a very high number. Ninety four percent of Michigan nurses emotional exhaustion. That's almost everyone. That's what we've been seeing. Uh, We've been studying uh, burnout among nurses for over a decade. And these are among the highest rates that I've seen uh, published. Uh, This sample are the are nurses who are practicing um, in the clinical areas, too. So that's important to note that it's Um, Not every nurse, but it's nurses who are in direct care of patients. This is this group that we studied. Christopher, uh, did this, uh, were the numbers as high before the pandemic or did it, did they start growing as a result of the pandemic? So that's a great question. And you'd be surprised to know that actually nurses have been reporting uh, fairly high rates of burnout for over a decade. But what we certainly see now is while we're in this new phase after the the wave of the pandemic, uh, we do see higher rates than we've seen before. My theory is that nurses have been dissatisfied with their job for over a decade, but the spotlight that nurses took during uh, the, the worst times of the pandemic really put a highlight on this. And now we're starting to see nurses decide to look for other employment. And that's what's worrisome. We continue to see the healthcare industry, though, under cost containment pressures. We know it's something that's out there. We're also adding more to nurses' plates. We're giving them more autonomy and, uh, you know, a greater um, capacity to serve, um, which was supposed to give them better job satisfaction. Why haven't those things increased their level of, of, of work satisfaction? I think what we've done is we have said, yes, nurses can take on more care and they are prepared to do that and they're able to do that. But what what a lot of health systems are doing is they're asking nurses to take on too many patients uh, in the hospital or too many patients in the clinic, number one. Number two, they're asking them to do that with fewer staff and fewer support resources, number two. Mm-hmm. And then number three, they're asking them to stay late do extra overtime, um, pick up another shift because somebody's out sick. So nurses aren't getting the breaks they need. They're probably caring for too many patients, and they don't have the support team around them to do it safely. And those are the things that we need to fix. Uh, Christopher, this is just anecdotally, but my mom taught nursing for many years in Pittsburgh, where I'm from. And now when she goes to the hospital, she talks to the nurses taking care of her, and she can't get over the ratio that these nurses have to take care of. Yes. Things are so just different in, in now. The, they are. In, in a, there's no backstop for nurses. Nurses really do not have the opportunity to say to their employers, enough is enough. This, this is too much. This is unsafe. You, you were just talking about the airlines, right? There is a set number of flight attendants for every plane that takes off in this country, every commercial plane. And the reason is you need to get out of the plane in 90 seconds if there's an accident. We have nothing like that in in hospitals and health systems. Mm. Nurses are routinely asked to take more and more patients with with absolutely no recourse. And we're asking nurses, as you point out, to do more, more complicated care. 
And they're able to do that, but they can't continue to add more and more patients to their workload. Christopher, why is it that the youngest nurses had the highest rates of burnout and, and, and thoughts of self-harm? Right. So across all three, we looked at burnout, we looked at thoughts of self-harm and, and sort of an overall well-being score. And all of those values were lower for the youngest nurses, the newest nurses into the field, those under 34. We think, uh, and, we're, and we're actually following up on this now, we think that younger nurses do not feel as supported in their workplaces. Uh, they've walked into this environment. Um, they're relatively new. They see that these working conditions are not safe. They don't feel supported. Whereas more experienced nurses have sort of taken this on the chin for a long time, have found ways to manage it. And so uh, that's really worrisome because if our youngest nurses are having the, the biggest problem, they're also the most likely to leave. Right. And we really can't afford that in Michigan if we want to have good care for our patients, for our loved ones. I mean, I, this is going to come off as harsh, and I, I don't mean it to, but, I mean, could this be a generational thing? Is it just that the older nurses have better coping skills? Well, we did see overall that these high rates of burnout. So it's not just the younger nurses. We did see just on average the younger nurses did report more of these issues. I think there might be a generational piece. We've, we've certainly heard a lot about the great resignation, right. uh, particularly during Quiet the wave of the pandemic. Right, right. And so, you know, nurses don't have the luxury of quiet quitting. You know, they still have patients in front of them. So it's really hard for them to, to disengage. So what I think we we probably need are better strategies for this group. What, we, what we've been doing for a long time to support healthcare workers doesn't seem to be working with this younger group. And so we need to better understand what they need and, and, get, and you know, provide that to them so that they can feel safe and supported in their environment. What we can't do is afford to lose them all to other, other industries and other sectors after all the training they've undergone. Uh, Michigan will consider staffing legislation for nurses this year. According to your research or study, what would the, the fastest thing you could do to help this problem? Is it that, staffing? So routinely, even before the pandemic, it's really important. Uh, nurses before the pandemic were citing understaffing, chronic understaffing as their number one concern. That has remained the number one concern and only grown. So if, if, I, if there was a magic wand, that is where we need to focus. And we actually can do that um, if we plan appropriately and we begin to move toward that. I know we can't do it overnight, but... What nurses have told us repeatedly in our work is that if we correct the chronic understaffing, a lot of these problems are going to go away and our loved ones are going to get better care. Nurses are just so important. They are the face in the room with you most of the time whenever yes. you're in the hospital or, say, you know, having yeah. a baby. And they're just so important. We should point out there is a pitched political battle underway in Lansing over this because yeah. there is a staffing ratio bill out there. Um those in the healthcare industry say it ties their hands, removes flexibility. That you, you, there are no hard and fast student patient uh, student uh, nurse patient ratios necessarily for every venue. So this is something that they're debating, and this survey gives them some some certainly some data to back that up. Yeah. Well, I I think what we can't do is continue to ignore this problem. So if you know, there's a variety of ways, and we talk about this in other work we've done. There are a variety of ways to get to better staffing. The, the hospitals and health systems could 
commit to that tomorrow. They could start to move their financial resources in that direction. You know, that's a hard thing to do, but they can do that. They don't need legislation. They've been unwilling to do that. And so legislation is on the table. The other approach is sort of a carrot and stick. If you have better staffing, maybe you'll get better reimbursement from insurance companies or Medicare. Or if you have really bad staffing that's ironically and consistently low, maybe you'll get penalized and not get as much reimbursement. So there's, and there's also the, the law that you talked about, the bill that, that's being considered. So there are a variety of ways to get us there. The evidence has been here for three decades that actually when we keep um, patient assignments to a reasonable level across hospitals, we have better patient outcomes and nurses are less likely to leave. We've known that for three decades. And so now the question is, how do we want to get there? Not should we try to get there? Well, the conversation will certainly continue in Lansing and elsewhere. Christopher Fries, thank you for your input and your time this morning. Great to see you. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, coming up, I, I love Tiger Woods. He's back yeah. at the Genesis Open. He's got some new merch. We'll talk about that with Steve next. He says that he is pain-free. And wouldn't that be nice if it's true? Tiger Woods heading back to the links of the Genesis Invitational this weekend, his first PGA start since that very sad Masters last year and following all of it. And probably wearing Tiger's new apparel as we speak, especially the Bermuda shorts on one of the coldest days of the week, is none other than our WJR senior sports analyst, Steve Courtney. Good morning, sir. What are you wearing? Uh, <laughs> that, uh, not, not what you described. <laughs> well, he has abandoned the Nike deal, and he's got some new apparel. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you're absolutely correct, Guy. Good morning to you and Jamie and Lloyd. Hello again, everyone. This conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off yet another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your Windows Roofing and Siding quote today. Log into WindowsRoofingSiding.com to enter the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. As a matter of fact, Tiger arrived at Riviera Country Club uh, for some practice uh, rounds on Tuesday. And yes, indeed, he was wearing his new Sunday Red Apparel. This will be the first tournament in his professional career where he isn't obviously decked out from head to toe in Nike's famous swoosh. That uh, announcement was made uh, oh, a little more than a month ago that that crazy relationship had come to an end. And just in case you're wondering uh, about the uh, iconic TW logo, uh, which has been all over the place for a while, mm -hmm. Tiger says no, he was not allowed to keep that. Uh, but he's happy. Uh, he says it is, in essence, a new day with his Sunday red apparel. And how many weekend hacks uh, took to the TW logo stuff thinking it would help their game? Anyway, uh, here's the I deal. resent being called a hack. <laughs> it, it wasn't uh, directed towards you, Guy. I just set the record there. Guilty but, you know, as charged. But somebody's a little sensitive over there. <laughs> Boy, I'll say it. <laughs> Easy, Tiger. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, uh, Tiger Woods, 48 years of age, he is set to wow. make his first start in an official PGA Tour tournament in more than 10 months. 
his first competitive round since he finished 18th in a 20-man field at the Hero World Challenge, that an unofficial event in the Bahamas in December. Now, Wood's most recent start in an official PGA Tour tournament, uh, as you alluded to, Guy, was at the Masters in April. He made the cut. Uh, then he was forced to pull out of the 2023 season's first major in the weather-delayed third round. It was absolutely brutal because of severe pain in his right ankle and foot. Uh, he is a 15-time major winner. He underwent fusion surgery on April 19th to address post-traumatic arthritis he suffered in the car wreck. But he did play 72 holes at the Hero World Challenge, and he said he was inspired enough to believe he could play one tournament per month this season, including the Players in March, the Masters in April, the PGA Championship in May, and the U.S. Open in June, and the Open in July. Hopefully, he's able to pull that off. I'll let you know that is tea time, and he's going off with his good friend Justin Thomas and Gary Woodland, 1225 our time. He will go off at 254 at Riviera for tomorrow's second round. Now, the Genesis Benefits Tiger Woods TGR Foundation uh, was the only official PGA Tour event in which he played 72 holes last season. Uh, he not only has new attire, folks, he also has a new caddy on the bag. Lance Bennett will carry Woods' bag this week. Uh, he has worked previously with PGA Tour players Matt Kuchar, Sung J M, and Davis Riley, as well as LPGA legend Lorena Ochoa. You remember his previous caddy, Joe LaCava, uh, had some success together. As a matter of fact, LaCava on the bag for Tigers' 15th major championship. That at the 2019 Masters. LaCava right now is working with Patrick Cantlay. So uh, all the best to Tiger. Hopefully he is able to accomplish what he is setting out to do. And a little sidebar here, and it's very interesting to point out, uh, Tiger said that he is not opposed to the public investment fund being an investor in the PGA Tour. Those negotiations with officials from Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund are ongoing. The quote, ultimately, we would like to have PIF to be part of our tour and a part of our product. Financially, we don't know right now, and the monies that uh, they have come to the table with and what we initially had agreed to in the framework agreement, those are all the same numbers. So kind of a development there. Boy, have the talking points changed for Rory and Tiger. Yeah, you know, it's uh, kind of interesting, James, and how ironic as we uh, get set to watch this Genesis Invitational. You know, the defending champ is John Rahm, who uh, right. certainly made headlines by mm-hmm. bolting to live. Uh, and I think uh, as we're having this conversation, nobody is really sure what this final arrangement is going to be between the uh, PGA Tour and that public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Uh, those negotiations are ongoing. So checking out the Sunday, Sunday Red, two words on Sunday if you're looking it up, the, the tagline is, it's more than a shirt. It's a mindset. I know, oh, I, wow. know, I know the clothes make the man, but this is a bit of an oversell. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an interesting logo. Uh, it looks like a yeah. fossil, a tiger, a tiger you're, fossil. You know what, Lloyd? You're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, so uh, not only is it going to be a hit with golfers, but archaeologists just can't get enough. <laughs> um, but it is a uh, tiger with 15 stripes, signifying the 15 major championships Ooh. that 
Tiger Woods has uh, has gotten. Uh, and I would imagine, um, you know, I, I like Nike golf attire. I do. Um, but uh, I'm sure the Sunday red apparel is uh, going to be very popular. Well, they say it's, it, it'll attract consumers as long as, as Tiger continues to make regular appearances. Well, and you know what, Lloyd? Uh, when the announcement was made uh, that Nike and Tiger were going to go their separate ways, uh, as I mentioned, uh, and it's kind of crazy, Tiger's 48. Uh, how much competitive golf does he have left? And maybe uh, with the powers that be at Nike, they said, look, you know, we've had a hell of a run, uh, but, you know, we're maybe going to put our money elsewhere. I don't know that that was the logic behind the business decision, um, but we shall see. But expect Sunday mm-hmm. Red to do very well. We shall see. I got to say, it's kind of bland when you compare it to Grayson, which is the creation of Charlie Schaefer, Michigan native mm-hmm. uh, and uh, an old friend. It's we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it drops on May 1st. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. All right, folks. Have a wonderful day. President Biden said that he was angry about being asked about Bo Biden. But was it him that brought it up? A new poll uh, dropped overnight from Fox News showing that uh, President Biden, in spite of having a very low job approval numbers, is doing better in Michigan than other Michigan polls have shown him doing. He's trailing former President Donald Trump by two points. That's after beating Trump by three points in 2020. Uh, But that is better than the five-point gap, which other polls in Michigan have shown. Uh, He still has a substantial lead among black voters, but his share of that is down from 93% in 2020 to 68% today. Now, we all remember back on Friday when the president was so upset uh, with the Robert Hur report, the classified documents report, the special counsel saying that during their interviews that the president had trouble remembering within a couple of years when his son, Bo, passed away. And that prompted this response from President Biden. Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or passed away. And he prefaced those remarks by saying, um, when he asked me about this, I was so offended. I basically said, none of your damn business. Well, turns out it wasn't Robert Hur that raised Bo's death at all. According to multiple witnesses that uh, have been quoted in uh, NBC News, it was the president that kind of brought it up while he was musing about, okay, yeah, you're asking about this timeline. What else was going on then that may have distracted me? Well, when was Bo's death? Well, I think it was then, and it turned out that then was no. It was a couple of years off of that. Mm-hmm. So for all of his indignation... The, the whole Bo Biden thing was not raised by this. It wasn't an insensitive moment that was raised by the special counsel at all. He wasn't trying a, a gotcha by, you know, raising this incredibly painful moment for the president and his family. It was the president. Yeah, because I, I kind of brought thought it up. That, that would, would have been kind of cruel to bring that up. It, ex- <laughs> ex- you know. Exactly. Of yeah. all the, the landmarks or touchstones, yeah. why would you nail the president on that? And it. It's been that part of it that has led to this narrative that, oh, he was out to get him and this was politicized. And, well, apparently, at least on that issue, no, it wasn't. And um, and these these polling numbers actually may be greeted within the Biden camp as some good news. That 47-45 split with Trump leading is still within the margin of error. Mm-hmm. 
So they may see that as a win, especially given the mountain of bad news the past uh, week or so. We are looking for uh, a young team. That's right, uh, Guy. Concerns growing for the safety of 13-year-old Naziah Harris, who disappeared over a month ago after getting off her school bus at Cornwell and Three Mile on January 9th. She was reported missing the next day. The Detroit Police Department, along with family members, they're intensifying efforts to locate her. The Detroit Public Schools Community District Department of Public Safety was originally handling the search, but based on circumstances, the Detroit Police Department took the lead in the investigation. Naziah's grandmother, Annette Harris, pleading for information. I don't want to do, think the worst about it, about her being abducted. I'm hoping and praying that that is not the case. I'm standing on my faith that God is going to bring my baby home. Despite hopes for her safe return, police express serious concerns. Deputy Chief Kari Sloan assures that they're aggressively searching and not ruling out any possibilities. We contacted our local, state, and federal partners, U.S. Marshals, FBI, some of our task force partners, even some of the... Uh, private sector, uh, missing and exploited children, all brought in to assist us in the, the search for uh, Naziah. Naziah was last seen wearing a distinctive jacket and blue jeans. If you have information, you're asked to call Detroit Police, their major crimes division, 313-596-2260, or you can call Crime Stoppers. You can remain anonymous, 1-800-SPEAK-UP. Speaking of criminal investigations, as if the Detroit Pistons don't have enough problems now one of their players in some pretty hot water phoenix sun center drew eubanks said detroit pistons power forward isaiah stewart quote sucker punched him before wednesday's game after an exchange of words while they were heading into the locker room on the road there just eubanks says quote just walking in words were said and got sucker punched and security stepped in and that was it Eubanks then played the game. Stewart was arrested for assault, issued a citation and released, according to the Phoenix Police Department. Uh, it seems the NBA is now looking into this incident because there are cameras everywhere mm -hmm. in these arenas. The Suns released a statement saying the attack on Eubanks was unprovoked and acts of violence such as this are unacceptable. It goes on. Pistons coach Monty Williams said he talked to Stewart about the incident and he took issue with the Suns using the word unprovoked. Williams said, I think it's irresponsible for them to do that when you really don't know because two sides are giving their story. Now, the Pistons released a statement saying they know about it. They're gathering information and responding to the NBA. If you remember, Stewart was involved in that LeBron James mm -hmm. kerfluffle, scuffle, if you will, on the court, um, which led to ejections. He's also had in incidents with Bucks guard Patrick Beverly in the past. So there's all of that. The Langer management issue What's there? the common denominator? <laughs> yes. Uh, just really quickly, uh, the news has been heavy for me today. This makes me excited. There will be a different type of Ohio-Michigan battle inside the shoe at, in Columbus coming up. The NHL will take a game outdoors to Columbus March 5th, 2025, between the Blue Jackets and Detroit Red Wings at that historic stadium, which can hold 110,000 oh, people. Is. How much Amazing. fun will that be? Let's go. And the Red Wings are cooking. Yes. So that, that will be And we're talking to a, a, one of the favorite Red Wings out there, Henrik Zetterberg, coming up at 835. Yeah, uh, not about hockey. No. no. Paddle sports. Yes. Or padel, I think, is the way it's I'm sure you have some questions pronounced. about that. No, I'm so I am so fired <laughs> up to try this. I think it, it looks really, really fun, and I can't wait to talk with him about that. Uh, some extraordinary 
expressions of uh, what's acceptable and what isn't in our public discourse. Yesterday on the Michigan House floor, and we know how deeply divided the House is right now. They're going at it hammer and tongs. There's not a lot. Speaker Tate and and, uh, Matt Hall, uh, leader of the Republicans, are exchanging a, a, a press release war. But yesterday they came together for a very important resolution and voted in favor of it overwhelmingly, and that is to condemn racist, xenophobic, and white supremacist language by members of the Michigan House. They also included anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, accepting the amendments to this. This was all, uh, but even though he wasn't mentioned, this was in reaction to Representative Josh Shriver, who is a Republican from Oxford, who reposted this whole disgusting Great Replacement Theory meme. But the the Michigan House speaking with one voice here, and that's uh, that's a good thing to see. Is Shriver responding? He voted no, saying mm-hmm. that uh, it was because he uh, values free speech. Well, free speech cuts both ways, right, sir. Yeah. And the majority of your colleagues said that your speech is objectionable, and they use their allowed first to condemn it. That's that's First Amendment right too. And and so you're free, free, your First Amendment. Everybody wants to hide behind the First Amendment as if there aren't any responsibility conditions to it, oh, right? Yeah, right? You you do have a right to free speech, but it also means that you're going to be judged by your words. Um, the U.S. House also passing a resolution, 418 to zip yesterday, to condemn Hamas's use of rape as a weapon of war. 418 to zero. Does that mean the representative to leave voted in favor of this? No, she voted present. So that's not against or in favor. Yeah, she says uh, all acts of sexual violence are horrific. Uh, We should all be fighting to end it here at home and around the world. The reason that she didn't vote for it is because it ignores the violence that's perpetrated by Israeli forces against Palestinians, especially children. Maybe it should have been a broader resolution, uh, but um, and and I I would but rape, her to show us the evidence of that. Perhaps she has some. But rape is not really rape is That's not right. Black or, and white. It's me. not right and left. Yeah. It's right and wrong. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> and voting present doesn't mean that you're actually present there for the women who were victimized on October seventh. You were not present in terms of defending the rights of women. To be free from sexual violence. Um, another disappointing vote. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little politics. We can also kick around that new poll. Uh, Adolf Mongo uh, with the Black America's take on this. How is it that President Biden's support among the African American community has fallen so low? We will talk with him and about this. Um, campaign that's underway to have people file a protest vote come the Michigan primary. It's all ahead on JR Morning. The age and mental well-being of President Joe Biden and its implications for his potential re-election bid was the focus of a recent ABC News Ipsos poll with 86% of Americans expressing doubts about Biden's ability to serve another term, including comparisons to former President Donald Trump, who was himself 77, the debate over age and leadership takes center stage. And joining us on the JR Morning Live line to talk about this and other political issues is political advisor and host of the Detroit in Black and White podcast, Adolph Mongo. Adolph, good morning, man. 
Hey, good morning, Lauren. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it seems that the media has been talking about Biden's age for a while, but it seemed to kind of really ramp up when the special counsel report into the handling of those classified documents called Biden a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Now, how is this going to affect the election? I mean, will Democrats just stay home or should they be looking for another candidate? Well, you know, that's up to the Democratic Party. Uh, no one has uh, challenged uh, uh, the, the president. And yes, the president is uh, 80 years old, uh, but Trump is, is an old man. And, and and he has some mental issues. You know, I, I compare this potential reelection to a, a George Foreman Ali fight. Both of them in the past that prime. No one wants to see a fight like that. Yeah. And really, no one wants to see this. But who does the Democrats have on deck to uh, step into uh, the slot if, if the president decides not to run or can't run? It's obvious that uh, Trump got a hold of the Republican Party and he controls it. So he's he's going to be that nominee no matter what. Well, now I'm thinking of all these analogies of sports people who've just (laughs) hung on a little too long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so if these are the choices and there are a lot of people who are, you know, not with Biden for certain reasons or not with Trump, what are we supposed to do? Well, you know what? You know that old saying, you know, uh, the, uh, pick the lesser of two evils. But this is ridiculous because, uh, you know what, we should be able to have better candidates. Uh, I thought uh, Joe Biden was going to be one term because of his age. and We needed someone like him. He's been a he's been a pretty good president. Uh, he got some things done. But the Democrats are going to have to come with their A game. They got a problem with the Arab community. They have a, a, a major problem in the black community. So they're going to have to get the, uh, get the people out to vote. You know, if the people get out to vote, you know, I see the president winning. But if folks stay home and, and don't vote, then you might have some problems. Adolph, uh, Fox News dropped a new poll this morning, specifically uh, North Carolina and Michigan, two pretty important battleground states here. In Michigan, they're showing that black support has dropped from 93 percent to 68 percent. I'm not surprised. Do you sense that? And, yeah. and, uh, so tell me what's behind it. Well, uh, Democrats take take their strongest support, their strongest base for granted. Can't, it's just it, we have this conversation over and over again, you know, and I was reading up on some uh, black history facts just for my podcast, and there was a state senator by the name of Cora Mae Brown, uh, the first black woman elected to the state senate in the U.S. from Detroit, and she was in a big fight with the Democrats and the UAW because they wouldn't support uh, the, the civil rights platform. And so here we are, 60, 70 years later, still talking about the Democrats not respecting us. They don't come and campaign in the black communities. Uh, they don't spend the money that they raise with black vendors, consultants, et cetera. You know, people see that and they like, man, why should I vote? You know, the last Democrat that black people got uh, up for was Obama. And that wasn't an election. That was a movement. So uh, also, Adolph, there is an alternative on the Democratic side. You have Dean Phillips. 
He's who? He's well, Dean who? Yeah, but listen, <laughs> he's, Dean who? He's, Dean he's, who? He's competent by, by all measures. He he can remember things, and at least you've got somewhere to go to stage a protest vote for the seventy three percent of Democrats who say Biden's too old. Why not support someone like that? I, I, well, be, because what what he didn't do. See, he waited late in the game. When people went after Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War, and they sensed that uh, that uh, President Johnson not only was sick, but he had heart issues. The war was taking its toll. So they came at him, Bobby Kennedy, uh, uh, Eugene McCarthy, et cetera. We don't have that here. We the, the Governor of California, Newsom, he could have came out and said he could challenge. Needed somebody that can raise some money and and got a high profile. Dean Phillips, he's a minor league player. You don't replace Justin Verlander with somebody from Class A. Uh, I think guys' is, questions about practicality. Yeah, is like, Joe Biden Justin Verlander? Uh, well, Did you read the Herb right report? Now, well, Joe uh, Verlander, about forty something years old, still pitcher. So you could be. It could be Tom Brady. A lot of you sports know. analogies here. Yeah, I like yeah. it. We, we don't have to pour, point Justin to the plate. <laughs> well, but let me tell you something. No one wants to see a Donald Trump, a Joe Biden rematch. But if we got to have it, I'd rather uh, vote for Joe Biden than a, than, a, than a person like Donald Trump who want to turn back the hands of time take away the voting rights of, uh, of people. Uh, he's vindictive. He wants to rush to attack NATO. He's in love with dictators around the world. No. So I'd rather go with, with grandpa, as I call him. Uh, Adolf. Is there somebody better than, than Joe Biden? I, they need to step up to the plate. Adolf, i got to ask you about uh, James Craig, his decision to withdraw from the Senate, and now he's looking at maybe trying to be the mayor. What's going on with James Craig? Uh, listen, man, I don't know what he's been drinking or smoking because all his campaigns have been, uh, they have been a failure. He wanted to run for governor, couldn't get the signatures. He wanted to run for the Senate. Oh, he don't have the money. Now, what What is he going to do with, uh, as a candidate for mayor if he doesn't have the money? I guess he's going on name recognition. But that's not going to help him. Uh, Adel, I want to ask you a question, a conversation that you and I had when we were on Flashpoint over a month ago, and that is, where are the challengers to Rashida Tlaib? We've got people lining up to take on Sri Tanadar. Why is uh, Rashida Tlaib such a, a, a an awesome foe that nobody wants to step into the arena? Uh, uh, listen, Guy, if I could tell you, I, I would. Uh, I, 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 I warn people about Rashida. She's a fraud. Uh, her, her agenda is not her. Her agenda was not an agenda for the people of the 13th when she represented uh, the 13th district. And Brenda Lawrence, former Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, gave her an out when she uh, retired. So she jumped to a new district with a base. Uh, the more people come at her, the more money she raises. Yeah. She said, you know what? In the Arab community, they're rallying around Rashida Tlaib. She's a, a, a formal candidate that is going to be hard to take her out. They had that chance, and they blew it.
they they had her on the ropes, but they had nine or ten candidates running against her. So here we are. Adolph Mongo, thank you so much for being here on JR Morning. Please come back. We will get you back. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Adolph Mongo, uh, political analyst and host for the Detroit in Black and White. Coming up. Henrik Zetterberg, former captain of the Detroit Red Wings, talking about a new game, some elements of pickleball in there. We'll talk about it next. Well, everyone knows Henrik Zetterberg, the legend, drafted in 1999, played his entire career with the Red Wings, the Conn Smythe winner, helped the Wings win the 2008 Stanley Cup championship. Then when Nick Lidstrom retired, he became the captain and fearlessly led the team for several years after that. That's his hockey career. But now he's dabbling in sort of a a paddle sport, and it's come to Metro Detroit. Let's bring in the captain. Welcome to JR Morning, Henrik Zetterberg. Thank you so much. Happy to be on. I miss talking to you in the Red Wings locker room. I got to tell you that. Yeah, no, it was uh, good times down there. Most of the time was good times, but, you know, we had some interviews that was a little bit sad too, but tried to keep it as good as possible. Well, the team actually is heading in the right direction. We'll ask you about that at the end of this, but talk to me about this paddle sport. It's got elements of pickleball, tennis, racquetball, and it's in Sterling Heights. And how'd you get involved? Well, it's a so long story short, when I retired, moved back to Sweden, um, and the sport of paddle was just exploding here in Sweden. And I didn't have much to do. I didn't want to go to the gym. I didn't want to, you know, go out and run. So I started playing this uh, new racket sport and I got hooked right away. Um, and then it has had really, during the pandemic here in Sweden, it got really popular. So kind of similar uh, pickleball did in the U.S., I would say. Um and then, you know, it was three former Red Wings. It was me and Nick Cronwell and Gus Nyquist uh, who kind of decided and we thought this would work really good in uh, in Michigan. And, you know, we started to look into that. And, you know, two and a half years later, now we have a, you know, facility in Sterling Heights. So, Hank, I've played racket sports my entire life. Squash, platform tennis, tennis, pickle. This is this is Mash Padel. What else? Explain it to me. I, I'm playing inside a, a cage there, and is it faster than squash? Slower than squash? Just explain it to me. I'm fascinated. Well, it, it, yeah, it is. It is fascinating. So, you, as you say, you're playing a, a basically glass in cage, and so the ball can basically bounce behind you in the glass. Um, if you use uh, all the walls next to you and behind you. Uh, so it, it could be a really fast sport, but it also, once you get to know it and you play it, you will notice that slow is actually good. Um, you see these tennis players coming in and they just try to bomb the ball, but it's really hard to actually kill um, a rally, you know, so it just keeps going forever. And that's why, for me, it was so good because in the same time, I burned a lot of calories. So <laughs> it was it, it was a nice sport for me. It was nice in my body. Mm-hmm. I thought that my my back, you know, I had issues running and, and doing that. But this, you play on a, 
on a turf so it's it, it's uh, a little softer on your joints and uh, it is an exciting sport and I think it's hard to explain it but I think as soon as you go on and you kind of just check out paddle on YouTube and whatever uh, you will find the sport really exciting and it's uh, I would say it's a sport for for everyone. Uh, Henrik, are there other places across the United States that, where it's catching on as well that have these type of facilities like the one we have here in Sterling Heights? Yes, yeah. So it's uh, it's. I think the first couple of them was down in in the Florida Miami area. Uh, they have a few in uh, California now. New York has a few. Uh, we are the first one in Michigan. Um, as of now, we're the actually the largest indoor facility in the u.s uh which is kind of and we we have eight indoor courts and the facility i play here in sweden it's 25 indoor courts so when we say in sweden here now that we have the biggest facility in the u.s they cannot believe it so it's but it's picking on slowly um over there and i i think I'm a big believer that it, it will fit over there. I, uh, it's a good complement to to pickleball, tennis, and all the other racket sports. And and uh, you know we've been open for months now, and uh, seems like people are really enjoying it. And how do you say the name of the facility? Uh, it's called Smash Paddle. Smash Paddle, but it's okay. P A D E L instead of P A D D L E. So now we know the name. And it, can you go there and learn it if you don't know the game? Absolutely. Yep. So we have a drop-in paddle on Mondays, 6 to 8. Um, and on Saturdays, we will have an open play. And uh, then I forced two Swedish paddle pros to move to uh, to Michigan. <laughs> and so, uh, so right now, I would say we, will have, we probably have the best um, – coaches in the u.s too they are really good players and uh, they have some good beginner clinics and so you know go on smashpaddle.com and uh, you'll find more information there all right quickly i want to ask you about the red wings watching from afar we've got the captaincy of dylan larkin we've got the young guys like lucas raymond mo cider what do you think they're seven and four in their last stretch yeah they it's exciting you know like we're all talked about, you know, wanting to have a postseason at Little Caesar. And, you know, this year I have a good feeling. Um, you know, I think this trip out west is Western Canada is going to be huge. Obviously, it was a tough, tough game in Edmonton, but sometimes you just got to tip your hat to the best player in the world, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think they have Vancouver tonight, right? Yes. That's the next one. Yeah, uh, and that was that was a tight game at home last week. So um, this trip is big, but I think now all the games, all the way coming in here on the stretch, is going to be it's so tight. You know, like if you look at the the wild cards, you know there there is a few teams there that uh, that will switch spots, and you know hopefully we can take a step up and lead the wild card spots. And but it, it's tight. It's a tough division, but. I have a good feeling. Seems like you're keeping track of your former team. I love that. So if there's a playoff run, will you come and join us? And then we'll go play your game in, in Sterling Heights with you. 
that's the deal. <laughs> All right. Thank Sign you. me up. Thank you so much. Again, yeah. I miss talking to you in the Red Wings locker room. You're a legend here. We love you. Um, and uh, we can't wait to try your new game. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. By the way, quick little thing out of yeah. Kansas City. This just popped up. Gabe Wallace, teenager, was running from the bullets. He was stressed out, very upset. An older, burly guy in a red jacket came up and put his arm around him. He said, just breathe, man. You're going to be okay. Andy Reid. Oh, wow. The Chiefs coach. He was there comforting victims who had fled the shots. Pretty. We know we love him. Love him even more. This takes it to another level. And we've got a great Michigan inventor. One more quick hit here, Lloyd. Yeah, let me tell you. When you're eating your Pop-Tarts this morning... Think of William Bill Post. He's credited with inventing the beloved Pop-Tarts for Kellogg's. He passed away at the age of 96, leaving behind this legacy that shaped breakfast tables worldwide. Raised in Grand Rapids, Post's journey began at Heckman Biscuit Company before his pivotal role in creating the iconic toaster pastry. His ingenuity led to the birth of the Pop-Tart in 1964, a snack sensation that sold out within weeks his career extended to Keebler and eventually Kellogg's, where he served as a senior vice president before retiring to Michigan. Despite retirement, he remained a, cons- a uh, consultant and shared the Pop-Tart story, inspiring generations. His wife, Florence, shared 72 years of marriage with him until her passing mm-hmm. in 2020. As a testament of his impact, a Netflix movie, Unfrosted, the Pop-Tart <laughs> story, starring Jerry Seinfeld. That's set for release May 3rd. That's just, that's fun. Well, what guy a, can attest they were unfrosted. They, yeah, th- when we got them when I was a kid, they weren't frosted. And I thought that they, I, that's when they lost me was when they, when they frosted them. Too sugary. Really? I want to I put butter on them. Oh, God. <laughs> they are delicious. They are. And I didn't know it was a Grand Rapids legend who brought it to oh, my, my table. God. Yeah. Wow. And he didn't take it to the post company. He took it to Kellogg's. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. When we come back, he is... According to the RNC, the new head of the Michigan Republican Party. There are those that think otherwise. Pete Hoekstra, next on JR Morning. Developing overnight, the RNC breaking its silence and recognizing Pete Hoekstra, the former West Michigan congressman, uh, as the new chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Though the legal challenges to that are not yet over. In fact, I think we've got a hearing coming up next Tuesday. Nevertheless, I think I can, based on the RNC, say to him, Mr. Chairman, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, exactly. What? How, did, how were you given this news? What did the RNC say? The, uh, well, it's, you know, the world of politics and leaks is always very interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I got a notification from some folks over at uh, one of the presidential campaigns and they said hey the uh the rnc has ratified you as chairman and five minutes later i got a call from the new york times and saying hey i've seen the uh, announcement i've heard the news you're going to uh, the rnc is going to recognize you that's, that's kind of like well that's interesting because i haven't seen anything yet but uh and it's also interesting that the you know, the the leak goes to the New York Times, which is always kind of a little surprising for a Republican. But uh, that's how <laughs> I found out. And about two and a half hours later, I got, uh, you know, I got my first uh, piece of concrete evidence from the RNC 
that uh, you know that they had made the decision unanimously uh, to recognize me as chairman. Uh, I, I know that the former president endorsed you for this position. He said, you know, it was the need for party unity, uh, you know, before this upcoming presidential election. Uh, how much did that play a part, you think, in the RNC saying, yeah, you you are the one that, you know, we look at as the chairman of the Michigan GOP? I don't think the president's uh, endorsement, as much as I appreciate it, had much to do with the process that the RNC went through. I mean, this past Monday, you know, our attorneys and Christina's attorneys uh, had the opportunity to present their cases to the RNC as to why Christina or myself would be the rightful chair. So it was, it was more of a, if you read what came out from the RNC, it was more of a legal proceeding where all the proper rules and procedures followed uh, and those types of things. And that is what they based their decision on. They said the removal was, uh, you know, was appropriate uh, following the rules and the bylaws of the Michigan GOP, uh, and therefore the uh, you know, the action subsequent to that, my election, uh, that's why they recognize me. Now, obviously, when you go to, uh, you know, when you go out to the public and others and you say, hey, the State Committee of Michigan elected me, the RNC has validated and recognized the appropriateness and uh, our presumptive presidential candidate has indicated his preference to work with Pete Hoekstra as chair of the RNC. You put all that together and it's like, okay, this, this is, uh, for all intents and purposes, this is over. Uh, Pete is the chairman and uh, let's get moving forward towards November. So what's the message then moving forward? Do you send out emails to donors? Do you make calls and say, look, now we we are... The craziness is over. You can donate again. <laughs> oh, it, it's kind of like that. But, uh, you know, uh, you, you go out and you do what a political party does. Uh, tonight I will uh, or tomorrow night I will be in Wayne County with uh, two of our candidates in the special elections for the state house. Uh, on Saturday, of course, we will be well, the party will be welcoming uh, Donald Trump to the state uh, mm-hmm. for a rally in Oakland County. Uh, the following weekend, uh, we will have uh, two fundraisers, two fundraisers, one with uh, Vivek and uh, another with uh, uh, a speaker yet to be announced. Uh, we're hoping we can announce it, uh, you know, today. I know who it's going to be. It's one of the people that's on the short list for the president's uh, on the president's VP list. So hopefully uh, we can announce that. So that we do the fundraising. Uh, and then we plan for the presidential primary. We plan, we plan for the, the caucuses. So we got a lot of stuff happening in the next two weeks that uh, is uh, indicative of what a political yeah. party is supposed to do. Pete, well, we have the, the chairmanship of the state Republican Party, apparently now uh, clarified. What about at the top of the RNC? We were told to expect maybe a change of leadership after the South Carolina primaries, but then... Former President Trump got out a little ahead of himself and endorsed uh, Michael Watley, the chair of the North Carolina GOP, to be the new RNC chair, and his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to serve as co-chair. We're still having primaries. There's still another challenger out there in Nikki Haley. Should Laura Trump be co-chair? Because she said she has made it her business to elect Donald Trump. Shouldn't we at least have a more, I guess, objective leadership? Well, the... um... 
the president coming out ahead of himself or ahead of somebody else is that news? <laughs> that, that's <laughs> happened before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I think what the president is believing, uh, the RNC is believing, is that uh, you know that after the South Carolina primary, uh, he will be the nominee. Uh, you know that that is Nikki Haley's uh, home state. Uh, the polls indicate that the president is doing very very well there, um, and so. You know, obviously, he will not have the delegates at that point yet to secure the nomination. Uh, but even right now, most political pundits are saying there's not a viable path forward uh, for anybody other than Donald Trump to be our nominee. But you don't and think a family member as a co-chair is inappropriate? Not once. Uh, not once uh, he's the nominee. No, no. OK, the. Uh, you know, it, it, that, that's fine. The president, the president needs to put in place, and this happens every time at the RNC and at the Democratic National Committee. The president puts in place the team that he wants to work with, that he believes gives the Republican ticket the best chance of winning. And if in this case uh, that happens to be his daughter-in-law, uh, you know, so be it. Uh, but, you know, that decision will have to be ratified by the RNC. But I okay. expect with the with the president uh, putting in a, uh, a request uh, for that, uh, I, I would guess that the RNC is going to honor that. I don't know. Uh, you know, the uh, I haven't watched the RNC all that closely. Uh, I've got my own I've got my own job right here in Michigan right now. Yes, you uh, do. But, uh, and so, you know. But uh, yeah. you know, the president, the pre- just like here in Michigan, the president is entitled to have the team that he wants in place. Uh, and I think you're going to see in the, you know, uh, probably today or in the next couple of days, uh, you're going to see a number of elected officials in Michigan, uh, you know, expressing the same thing. They believe that Pete Hookstra is the best person to help lead a team, the Michigan mm-hmm. Republican team to victory. Uh, this fall, and they'll they'll be coming out and, and saying we also recognize Pete, uh, and we want him to uh, be the chairman of the uh, the state party. And hopefully, you, hopefully we don't end up in court. But if we end up in court, you know, so be it. Um, well, and but I think the, we we will do well in the courts. And Pete, so you know, this should end up this should end sooner rather than later. Let's hope so. Pete Hoekstra, Mr. Chairman, thanks for being with us. Have a great day. Always. Hey, you too. Thank you. And we'll see you tomorrow at 6.